Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Salah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. Salah. As well, the singers as the players on instruments shall be there. All my springs are in thee. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. (coughs) Excuse me. I have commended to your reading before a sermon by the Reverend David Clarkson called Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. Uh, We'll have a few things in common with that sermon in our study this week and perhaps next. But I have a quotation from you or for you from the Reverend Clarkson. So hear what the good Reverend has to say. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He says not, I am near them or with them or about them, but in the midst of them. As much intimacy as can be expressed. And so he is described, Revelation 113, to be in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, in the midst of the church. There he walks and there he dwells, not only with them, but in them. For so the Apostle 2 Corinthians 6, 16 renders that of Leviticus 26, 12, which promise he made upon the presupposal of his tabernacle, his public worship amongst them, when he said, I will be with them. And those are my comments there to help clarify. Hence it is that when the public worship of God is taken from a people, then God is departed. His presence is gone. As she, when the ark was taken from the Israelites, cried out, the glory is departed. And why? But because the Lord, who is the glory of his people, is then departed. Public ordinances are a sign, the pledge of are assigned the pledge of God's presence. And in the use of them, he does in a special manner manifest himself present. Well, there's a lot to be said about that quotation. <clears throat> but we'll, we'll ride through here for a little while as we uh, examine Psalm 87. So let's review briefly before we move on. We've looked at the benefits of Zion. And have hopefully been learning to ascribe proper worth and value to the visible church and to public worship. In Galatians 4, we heard that this Jerusalem is above. She is a heavenly Jerusalem. And indeed, we heard that she is our mother. And from Isaiah then, we are told to seek the breasts of her consolation. Isaiah 66, 11. Like a child for its mother. Turning to Hebrews 12 then, we looked at the place itself, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, much like what we have just read in Psalm 87. And then also we remembered uh, in Psalm 48, where we were told to know her palaces and her bulwarks, her situation, all that the Lord has blessed her with by way of fame, renown, situation. We consider her doctrines, her teachings, her law, her practices. Those are the modern day bulwarks, gates, towers, etc. But then we turn to Hebrews 12 to the inhabitants, her people, her God, her mediator. And we concluded that study last week regarding the benefits of Zion. We're rising up to to an even greater principle for valuation this week. What we have done so far is we've done like a, oh, I don't know, please forgive the metaphor, like a car salesman. We have said to each of you, look at this and look at all the great things about it and then look at all of the people that have also said great things about it. Right? We've showed the benefits of Zion. And they are wonderful benefits, are they not? 
The presence of God promised. The city of God. Uh, We learned about the ministry of the word. We heard about the saints that have departed and gone on to heaven before us. It's that same faith that they had that we have. We learned also about that we are royalty. We are inheritors with Christ. This is the city of inheritance in other words. It is to God the judge of all that there are final divine judgments that take place here and there in the future according to Zion. And then also we come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Those are all wonderful benefits. But it is my opinion that the definitive argument that we are to value Zion rightly is because God values her above all else in this world. That's really the reason, isn't it, beloved? We could mine out of Scripture. We've looked at two different passages, Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12. And we've been four weeks or so, five weeks looking at that. We could mine out of Scripture. We could start running through the Psalms and just pick out psalm after psalm after psalm where we hear about the greatness of Zion, her wonders, her doctrines, her palaces, her walls, her habitations, that God is with his people there, that the people of God go up to her, right? We learned about that festal gathering and all that. We could see that in psalm after psalm after psalm. But we're going to stop and we're going to look at one other psalm instead, but not for the same reason. This psalm tells us about how God favors Zion. And that, beloved, should be the definitive argument to any of us that are professors to love that one God, that one true God. Because God himself says that he prefers it to all of the dwellings of Jacob, all of the dwellings uh, among his people. That uh, should be enough to tip the scale in valuation. So that Zion sits on one side, that heavy thing that goes down, And everything else, no matter what's on the other side, goes up. Psalm 87, I think, presents that truth to us. We have the preference and value of God himself. It is said here that he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Judah. And this should cause the lover of Jehovah to take notice. The Lord Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, loves the gates of Zion... And his love should be directive of our love. Do we not often pray that the Lord would raise up our hearts to love what he loves and hate what he hates? If the Lord has such love upon Zion, that should be our love as well. The blessing of God rests upon Zion. And this is seen in several things. Particularly the favor of God himself that rests upon her. And the advantages that the Lord brings to her. She is desired above other cities. Her inhabitants are are more favored than all others. All of that is true. But all of those things pale when we hear God loves the gates of Zion. And that should direct us. All right, so let's dive into our text here of Psalm 87. We have the psalm title. A psalm or song for the sons of Korah. And I don't mind taking a couple of moments here to reiterate what we already know, some of us. Some of us need to hear it, perhaps for the first time. Of this wonderful thing that we see often in the Psalter about the sons of Korah actually writing psalms. The sons of Korah will remember Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. After they failed of entering into the land, Korah, uh, well, some of the people said, well, let's go back to Egypt then. This guy Moses, he's led us into this place. It's not going to be any good. Let's go back to Egypt. So some of them said, let us get a new captain and go back to Egypt. Korah didn't say that. Korah's objection was, you sons of Aaron and especially you Moses, you take too much upon you. Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Had Moses heard that before? Oh, he had. 
he had at the beginning of his 40-year sojourn with Jethro. Who made you a ruler or a judge over us when he killed the Egyptian, right? And that's when Moses departed. Now Korah brings up that same thought again. You take too much upon you. Why should we listen to you? Don't you know, Moses, all the congregation is holy. And so you have Korah, who was a Levite, but not a son of Aaron. So he worked in and about the holy things, right? Not upon the holy things, but about them. So when the tabernacle traveled, the sons of Aaron came in and packed up all of the, all of the artifacts, right? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, they covered it all up. They put it in its proper coverings. And then they gave it to the Levites to carry. And Korah was one of those Levites. So although Korah had been brought to that level of nearness to the Lord, he was not satisfied with that, but thought that he should be competent to do what the sons of Aaron did. Well, you'll remember that 250 of the Korahites that stood with Korah before the Ark of the Covenant before the altar of, of burnt offering, died when the, when the fire came out from the altar. And they stood there with their censers in their hand. And those brass censers were gathered up, pounded flat, and put on the side of the altar as a continual witness to the people of God that Korah died and 250 of his did. However, several did not. And these men went on to be Psalm writers, inspired uh, poets in Israel, and their psalms were collected by David and other and others in the College of the Prophets up until the time of Ezra, and were incorporated into the Psalter. Now imagine what the sons of Korah would think, thinking back on their family history, <clears throat> when two hundred and fifty of their fathers died uh, at the altar of burnt offering, what would they think about Zion? Yet this psalm is penned by one of the sons of Korah. He understood its preciousness, its holiness, and how the Lord prefers it over other things. So the sons of Korah, if you're taking notes, take down these scriptures and you can look them up. 1 Chronicles 9, 14 through 20. 1 Chronicles 26, 1 and 19. 1 Chronicles 6, 31 through 38. And one more, 1 Chronicles 15, 16 through 19. You wonder why we have genealogies in the Bible. This is why. So that we can understand that a man whose name will appear in the Psalter as the author of one of the Psalms, Haman, H-E-M-A-N, that he was a Korahite. He was one of the sons of Korah. All right, with that as the background then, verse 1 begins rather abruptly, doesn't it? His foundation is in the holy mountains. Where did that come from? Whose foundation? What holy mountains? Right? Well, we're faced with a question, right? Whose foundation is it? Well, the answer is not too difficult because the rest of the psalm is clear that we're talking about Zion, the city of the Lord's establishment. In verse 3, we have the phrase, the city of God. It is called his foundation, remembering that in the Hebrew, city is feminine and not masculine. And so we're very clear that it's not Zion's foundation that's in the holy mountains. It's his, the Lord's foundation, that is in the holy mountains. If it was talking about Zion, the word city, ir in the Hebrew, is a, is a feminine noun. So it would have been her foundation is in the holy mountains. In that it says his foundation is in the holy mountains. It's God's foundation is in the holy mountains. What do we mean by holy mountains? Well, let's remember that when we talk about Mount Zion, we're actually talking about two mountains. Right? We say Zion, 
And there is one hill upon which the, the uh, temple sat. That's the, that's the hill, uh, or sorry, that's the plot of land that David purchased from the, thre- you know, as the threshing floor of Ornan, where he offered the offering to stay the plague after he had numbered the people. And that is on Mount Zion, or Mount Moriah. It is the same mountain that Abraham raised his knife to slay his son Isaac and was stayed from doing so by the angel of the Lord. And then just off of that mountain is a, is a shallow valley and a brook that runs through it. Anybody remember the name of that brook? It's the brook Kidron, right? Kidron is the name of that brook. And then across that brook, that footpath over that brook, you rise up into another mountain, and that is called the Mount of Olives. And so it has always been a sort of complex of hilltops there. When the writer here tells us that his foundation is in the holy mountains, what we're learning here is that God has called this rarefied land his own, and he has set his own foundation there. And we're going to find out what that foundation is as we move forward. It speaks of the Lord's choosing out a place of holiness to settle his own city. And it has a a double reference as Jerusalem geographically was nestled within a grouping of hills. Her foundation then is set among the mountains. But it is the holy mountains particularly spoken of here. These mountains are not particularly known as holy in history. Right? William Plummer in his commentary on the Psalms speaks of two mountains, Zion and Moriah, the city complex founded upon these as often in scripture comprehended as Zion. So it seems the term Zion might stand for holy mountains instead of a mountain with the Mount of Olives joined to it. So you have Zion and Moriah, then you have a little valley, and you have uh, the Mount of Olives. But why are they holy mountains? What's holy about them? Well, they're holy because this is where the Lord has chosen to set his name. His foundation, we might say, his name, is in the holy mountains. He has chosen that as a special place of his presence in the world. Um, We'll remember what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8 at the dedication of the temple, which was, by the way, on top of Mount Zion. Right? He will say... Um, but will God dwell in a temple made with hands? The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, O Lord. Right? And so because God is everywhere, no place is holy. No, that's bad thinking. The scriptures often um, debunk that idea. Moses approaches that burning bush on top of, yeah, Mount Moriah, He approaches that burning bush and the Lord says, take off your shoes, the place where you stand is holy. What makes it holy? Because the presence of God was there. Because immediately the text follows and says, and I'm in Exodus chapter 3, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. So the Lord has chosen at times of history in certain places To cause his name to dwell in a certain place. Different than the rest of the places on the earth. He did that with Zion. He set his foundation there. And I think that if if you were to scratch me deeply enough and get my complete opinion on this. I think that Zion as a name persists. Even though, as we have seen, we have come to that Mount Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem... So that we can actually say the foundation of God is in Zion. Although even that earthly Zion could not contain all of the ideology of what it meant for God to dwell somewhere. Because God will finally reveal himself in Christ and the heavenly Jerusalem in that way. So although there was a foundation on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Mount of Olives... There was a foundation that was laid there. 
That wasn't the foundation that would remain there. Some by attachment to that particular mountain in that countryside to the east of the Mediterranean shore and to the, uh, to the west of the Jordan Valley have become very superstitious over, you know, that XY location. It's not that location, although in these days it was, but it's not to be that location forever, and that's why it is called the foundation. Because if God's foundation was upon that spot, where would his foundation be today? So that was merely an earthly representation of a greater reality. And that is what Christ will tell the woman at the well of Samaria. That God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. That there is such a thing as a heavenly Zion. And that is the true foundation where God dwells. Yet, there is still a, a communion, if you will, between that heavenly Jerusalem and earth. Such that, as we have learned from Hebrews chapter 12, that we come to it. We come to that mountain when we come to the visible church. So God manifested his name in that place in Jerusalem for centuries upon centuries. Then he caused that place to be torn down as Jesus prophesied to the woman at the well and to his disciples in Matthew 24. And then he established his name in a different way, but it's still um, communicative, if you will, of the same truth that there are still places upon the earth where God manifests his name or where he sets his foundation. And they are that way. They are those places of special manifestation because of their relationship To the heavenly Zion. Remember that in Galatians chapter 4. As we studied that passage. That the apostle Paul. Will say that the Jerusalem that now is. Has nothing to do with Zion at all. It's Sinai and Hagar and the flesh. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. Which is the mother of us all. So you see the biblical terminology here. That Zion is a special name and it is retained into the New Testament. And we as the people of God come to it because the name Zion is attached to God as that foundational place where he has chosen to set his presence. And that exists today in faithful churches that preach the truth. Okay? It is a little... It's a couple of steps of typological movement there. But I think that those dots are fairly easily tied together. Especially when we have studied those two passages, Galatians 4, Hebrews 12, that teach us that there is a heavenly Jerusalem that exists today and that we come to it when we join ourselves to the visible church. All right. So his foundation is in the holy mountains. As we move to verse 2, I would like to maybe talk about one thing, but hold the second half, or sorry, the first half of that verse, until next week. I want to talk to you this week through the rest of Psalm 87, but I want to hold the ideology of that first phrase in verse 2. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, I want to hold that love of the Lord and and talk about that next week. But I want to talk about what the psalmist means here when when he talks about the gates of Zion. What are the gates of Zion? What does that represent? What did, in the ancient world, what did the gates of a city represent to them? Click, 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 click. Your wheels are turning, right? You're trying to remember all of those passages out of the Old Testament that talk about gates. That's good. That's what, that's what we ought to be doing. This is where we ought to be thinking right now. What took place in the gates? Well, judgment took place in the gates. Right? What else took place in the gates? Legal matters. Registrations. Right? What else took place in the gates? Gates were opened 
and shut. They were open to let people in and shut to keep people out. Right? They were gates for protection, if you will. And so on. So, it's a place of entry. It's a place of defense. It's a place of business. It's a place of judgment. A city that was righteous would have righteous gates for all of her commerce, her government, her service, and her protection was righteous. And so we have places in the Bible where we read about righteous gates and so on. Remember when Samson uh, was kept out of a place for a while, what did he do? He picked up the gates and carried them away. What was that a sign of? Well, that was a sign of, if I wanted to, I could come in and destroy all of you. Right? Okay. So let's turn to a few places and look at gates for a few moments. So we might understand the significance of it. Deuteronomy chapter 17 is the first. Verse 2. If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have not commanded. And it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought in Israel. Then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. Notice, first of all, they start out within the protection. They're within the gates. That's, that's that one aspect, right? That, that protection. But then they're brought to the gates, the place of judgment, to be killed because they have become heresiarchs. They have led other people away from the Lord their God. Notice, they're not punished for their secret private opinion. They are punished for leading others astray. Let us go and worship other gods. In the second, 21.19. Deuteronomy 21.19. Beginning in verse 18. If a man shall have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of that city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. There is judgment and punishment that takes place at the gate of the city. Across the page in 2215. Beginning in verse 13, if any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. And we know the rest of the story. We just read that a few weeks ago. In 2224, Then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Again, judgment and punishment taking place in the gates. Chapter 25 and verse 7. If a man like, like not to take his brother's wife, then let the brother's wife go up into the gate unto the elders, and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, and so on, there's a ceremony that takes place after that. But where does it take place? At the gates of the city. Uh, We'll remember that that is exactly what played out 
in the book of Ruth in chapter 4. And so what does Boaz do in verse 1? Then Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Where were they? They were at the gate, the place of judgment, the place of legal transaction, and so on. The place of authority, if you will. And so the kinsman said, I can't redeem her. And so now he's known as, hey, you without a shoe for the rest of his days. He wanted to be the man that saved his inheritance, that saved his name. He doesn't have a name in this passage. He's simply called, hey, you without a shoe. So remember that the Lord often does such things with names in the Bible. The name of the porridge that Jacob offered Esau was Adom, meaning red. Esau said, what good is my inheritance to me if I die? Give me some of that Adom. And so from then on, his descendants were known as the Adomites or the Edomites. That became their inheritance. The Lord often does that in Scripture. So here we are in the gates. We're doing all kinds of judgments, aren't we? Second Samuel chapter 19. So this is when Absalom had died. David was weeping for Absalom privately. The people of God, rather than rejoicing with the king in his victory, he was weeping in his chambers. They went confused to their homes. He got good counsel from Joab that day, who came out and said, you better sit in the gate and call your people to yourself and give them comfort. If you don't do that, you'll have another rebellion. And so, verse 6, In that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends, for thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants, for this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and, and had we all died uh, this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now therefore arise, go forth, speak comfortably unto thy servants, for I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. So David sat in the gate. All the people came to him. We look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 7. This, is, this takes place in the northern kingdom, in Samaria. Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Place of commerce, place of activity, right? Of course, that's that, you know, the man says, Oh, if, Lord, if the Lord opens the windows of heaven, that won't be. Well, you'll see it, but you won't partake of it. And he ended up dying not partaking of it. That's right. But it was in the gates that that buying and selling took place. Second Chronicles 32. <clears throat> Verse 1. After these things... And the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, 
Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Also he strengthened himself and built up a wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them saying, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. What a great, can I say it this way? What a great sermon that was preached by the king of Zion to the servants of Zion in the gates. What did they hear? They heard comfort. And then finally, Nehemiah <clears throat> chapter 8. Verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel and Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men uh, and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So the gates in in Second uh, Chronicles 32 and here in Nehemiah, that gate was a place where the Lord's word was spoken to the people of God. So when the Lord declares that he loves the gates of Zion more than all the districts or dwellings of Judah, we have a very clear picture, may I say it this way, that it is the business of Zion that is more well-beloved than all the places of his people's dwelling. The gates of the city, the gates of where, that, where his foundation is laid, the Lord's foundation. That, th- those gates are the business of the city. It's where it's protection and defense, where it's advertisement, it's, it's news, it's preaching, it's commerce, it's legality, it's judgments, where all of those things. So gates become a metaphor, a picture of the business of a city. What is the business of Zion? What is the business of Zion in the sons of Korah's day? It is the place where God is to be worshipped. It's the place where he has set his name. This is the business, the business of the church. This heavenly Jerusalem to which we come, when we come to its earthly manifestation, this is the place where the business of God goes forth. And what is the business of God and his foundation? Well, it is simply the preaching of his word, the administration of the sacraments, those items of worship that are brought in service to him. God loves those gates, beloved. He loves those glorious things, if we move on to verse 3. Glorious things are spoken of thee, thou city of God. Well, the concept of glory in the Old Testament is something that is weighty, right? Not something that is vain and light, but something that is glorious and heavy. And you have to think of of a balance because that's how everything was weighed in those days. You know, we step on a scale today and a little dial goes, or little numbers go. I know I'm giving myself away when I say, does anybody step on an analog scale anymore? I don't know. Some of us never step on a scale, you can tell. So, that's how things are weighed today. But in those days, things weren't weighed like that. You had had a particular set of weights that were standardized. And everything was put in a balance. And so the concept of glory and vanity, those are the opposites in the Old Testament. Glory is that which goes down in in the scale. And vanity is that which goes up. In fact, there are some places where the Lord says that the idols of the nations are vanity. They are lighter than the dust of the balance. 
right? The dust of the, you, you don't even measure that. You just put your stones on there and measure everything out. You don't worry about how much dust is on the balance. But the idols of the nations are lighter than the dust of the balance. That's the extent of their vanity. But of Zion, glorious things are spoken of thee. Heavy things, weighty things, eternal things. That is that God has set his name here in her forever. And beloved, no matter how weighty the other things of this world may seem to be, they are lighter than vanity, lighter than the dust of the balance. You know why? Because in Psalm 102, and then quoted of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, all of those things are going to be rolled up like a scroll. Rolled up like a scroll. But thou art the same, and thy years never fail. That's the comparison that's made in Hebrews 1 and in Psalm 102. And it's spoken of Christ. This is his city. He is the king that sits in the gate upon Zion, right? Psalm 2. And it is from Zion, through his scepter, that his word goes forth. This is that foundation. This is that gate where these weighty things are taken up, these glorious things which are spoken of thee, O city of God. And that it is the city of God, well, that translates exactly back to where we were in Hebrews chapter 12, where we heard that this Zion is the city of the living God. You see what the writer does there in Hebrews 12. He relates it exactly to Psalm 87. The city of God, the city of the living God. So glorious things of thee are spoken. She may be marginalized by the world. The world may not even give her second glance. The world may say of the church that the church is like the dust in the balance. Right? Any government that does not kiss the sun will be brought to nothing. It's clear. We can turn to Psalm 10, I'm sorry, to Psalm 2 for a moment. To see that. Psalm 2. Verse 10. Well, no, let's begin in verse 1. Why do the heathen rage, the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. What do the kings of the world think of the church? What do they think of Zion? What do they think of the God of Zion? Right? Let us break their bands. We don't need to do what they say. We don't need to do what God says. Nope. Okay. Then we skip the rest of it and put and uh, put in at verse 10. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That king that the Lord has set upon Zion. So, our Lord Jesus Christ is the king that sits in the gate of Zion to administer his justice, to teach his people to give his discipline, to give his order, to comfort his people as David comforted his servants in the gate of Zion in his day. She is the city of God. It's called the city of God because he has established her. It is of his blessing and provision. It is also his very own possession. He has claimed it for his own. And she is holy because the Lord God has set her apart unto himself. Moving on to verse 4 then. Let's turn back to Psalm 87. Verse 4 it says, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. Well, you might imagine there's some difficulty there with interpretation. It's a little bit obscure. 
But I think that this is a prophetic psalm. I'm not worried about this interpretation. I will make mention who's the I that is speaking there, the prophet. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. And so what the Lord is advertising here by the mouth of his prophet is that there will be some from Rahab. Rahab is an ancient poetic name for Egypt. And Babylon, the enemies of God. Philistia, another enemy. Tyre, those who with their wares led the people of God astray. Ethiopia, which stood for those in foreign lands a long way away. They will all come to Zion and they will be brought into the city and it will be said of them, this man was born there. He belongs. This is a missionary psalm, if you will, in that way. Because when the Lord sits in Zion and when he is at his gates and when he is doing what he does in Zion, remember his promises are to the ends of the world. And so Psalm 87 is indeed a missionary psalm. Verse 5 completes the comparison. And of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people. This is that role we talked about before. That this man was born there, Salah. So verses 4 5 and 6 teach us a little bit more about the inhabitants of Zion, that they are from every kindred and tribe and tongue. The least that you would expect to find there, you will find them in Zion, partaking of the glory and the judgments and the business of Zion and her gates. Then, in verse 7, as well the singers... And the players on instruments shall be there. All my springs are in thee. Well, we read a few moments ago, didn't we? From Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 32. That there were all kinds of springs in and about that holy mountain. And what did Hezekiah do when he heard that the Assyrians were coming? He stopped them all up. The brook Kidron. They stopped up the brook Kidron, way upstream. And why did they do that? What what did they say to themselves? Why should the kings of Assyria come and find water? Why do we want to give water to our enemies? Right? These springs are mentioned here again, but they're mentioned prophetically. They're not mentioned as springs of water. Because by now we have all realized, haven't we? Because the Ethiopians and the Rehabites and and the Babylonians, they never came to Zion In that way, this is a prophetic psalm speaking of our day. Speaking of the days of Messiah when the gates of Zion would be home to many from all over the known world. And so the singers and the players on instruments shall be there. That is, that's where the worship of God is. And that is one other reason why God loves those gates. Because that is where he is worshipped. Publicly. And then all my springs, the Lord says, are in thee. My springs being what? The, The wells, the fountains of salvation are there. So what have we seen? We've seen some more benefits, haven't we? We've seen more benefits here than we saw perhaps in some of the other places. But we've also heard... That the Lord loves those gates better or more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And by Jacob there, we must understand the northern and the southern kingdom. In other words, as comprehensive as we can think of Israel of old. He doesn't say Judah, he says Jacob. So, next week what I'd like to do then is I I, I would like to open up with you why the Lord loves the gates of Zion more. Why public worship is to be preferred before private worship? And the short answer is that in everything, God's name is more glorified here than anywhere else. That's the short answer. But there are many particulars that feed into that answer. 
And so I want to um, share those with you next week. So thus far in Psalm 87, what we've done is we've walked through the entirety of the psalm. We have seen it to be that prophetic psalm. We've, we understand what gates are. That's the business of Zion, what she owes in her service to the Lord. That's the place where the king sits and administers the affairs of his city. It is that foundation of God, that foundation that endures. It's not a foundation that was rooted up when the Romans tore down the temple in 70 AD. No, that that foundation continues in the heavenly Zion to which we come when we come to that faithful, visible church. And so we have, we have unpacked all of, the, all of the dark sayings of this passage, except one. Why does God love her more than all the gates, all the, dwell, the dwellings or the tents of Jacob? Why? Because he is glorified more here than anywhere else. And if we would have the mind of God, we will love it more too. So that's what we'll show next week. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we, we do thank Thee for, uh, for the psalmist, that he was a son of Korah, that he himself had a, a, a gracious understanding of Zion and his labors there, uh, especially because of what had happened to his ancestors. We thank thee, Lord, that we might uh, learn to love Zion as thou dost love her. And that we might learn to, in our, in our various places, to love that business of Zion, that activity, that assignment, that duty of Zion. We thank thee that thou hast set thy king in thy holy hill of Zion. That he is indeed at, taken his seat at thy right hand. He is at the gates of Zion, administering her justice and mercy and grace. We thank thee as well that that worship, the singers and the players, that worship of God goes on in Zion. That there might be a a greater appreciation there. And also that the wells, the springs of salvation flow forth from her gates. O Lord, we pray Be with us as we think on Zion and with Psalm 122 that we might walk about Zion. Tell her palaces, know her bulwarks, count her towers. And that we might know that city of the living God where thou hast set thy foundation. That we might have that same appreciation that thou hast revealed thyself to have for her and her gates. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 107.